morning in the book of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And I only need to read the first four words in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. That's it. You can be seated. I knew it would take you a while to get to Genesis, so I figured. In the beginning, God. That's our text this morning. British theologian John Hicks has written a very profitable book entitled God Has Many Names, in which Hicks's thesis is to highlight that one cannot restrict the definition of God to a mere single description because God is too, too wide, too much of who God is to be restricted to one particular name. I've borrowed from Hicks' title, my own title this morning, Lord, help me to know your name. Throughout scripture, there are various different divine names ascribed to God. And I think one of the most profitable things about people engagement to who God is is their often inability to find what might be described as some logical description of who God is. And that is because God is again so vast and wide that it's difficult to narrow God's name down to one specific. But just a mere concept of God should be overwhelmingly bewildering to the human spirit and by bewildering I mean it can take us on a journey a journey that is marked repetitively by images and shadows provisions and moments of growth and even moments of death life comfort and healings and yet this list may be arguably seated in the category of endless because once you start describing who God is, it goes on and on and on and on. And with this credited attempt to sort of define God, we really are trying to say who and what God is. And likewise, the where and the isness of God. So not only who he is, what God is, but where God is. And then the isness of God now. Because uh, I'm convinced that one cannot just say that they know God in the sense of an eternal presence or in eternal expectation, eternity, living in a space that's timeless. But to know God requires 
personal experience, something down to earth where you are, something that is not in the heavens or merely in the heavens, but transitions from heaven into the earthly realm where the creator creates creation with an objective of interacting with the creation. And so, Grandmama used to say, I would never serve a God that I couldn't feel sometime. In other words, what she was trying to say that I don't always know how or nor do I sense that God is there all the time, although I know God is there, but she says every now and then he reminds me that he's there. He lets me sense and feel. Now the German scholar Frederick Sleinmarker, who's one of the few that I know, would argue that you ain't really serving God until you feel God. And I agree with Sleinmarker, who of course was one of those scholars who were of the evangelical tradition, but yet he says, to walk with God means that you have to have a feeling to know that God is there. And it's something within you that assures you that he walks with me and he talks with me and he comforts me and he reminds me that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. Slimacher says it's that preeminent connection that when you're all alone and there's nobody else there but you and God, there's something going on between the two of you. It's so preeminent and yet so in-depth in the person of who you are that folk can see you riding down the road and look over and wonder what's wrong with you because you crying and yet you waving your hand and they don't know what's going on in the car, but one thing is for sure, you know what's going on in the experience. And that's why Hicks says you can't reduce God to a mere one description because he's just too large to reduce him down to that. In fact, the words that we use, which is the mechanics of communication, is somewhat inadequate to even attempt to describe God, and arguably they are even too limited, but yet that's the best that we have to work with is trying to use words to give us some understanding. In fact, it is well worth the pursuit to explore the voices of those who define God, here it is, who have limited eloquency. Their, their, their descriptions is limited. In fact, it's absent of religious jogger and void of ecclesiastical cliche, but yet its description is meaningful. For example, the natives, the Native Americans, describe God as the red man. Now, if you don't know what that means, you would think that that's an insult, but they equate God as the creator to the red clay of the earth in which God scooped out the clay and then created his creation in his image, and thus they say that God is the red clay man who is not only the creator, but has a intimate, deep reflection of his creation on the inside of them. It's John Mabiti in his book, The Concepts of God in Africanism, tells us that no matter what African tribe 
you begin to explore all of them in their different dialect and in their different tongue have a description of God and yet they all use different words but they all lead to the very same conclusion whether it's the Nagambis or the Zulus or the Akans or the Ashantis or the Bambatus or the Bikongos each say that God is all-powerful and that God is almighty and that God is the strong one the Zulus say that God is irresistible irresistible to the point that he bends down and when he bends down to the earth his roar makes humanity tremble the Nagambi says that God is the strong ones watch this who helps you find things that you lose God Almighty in other words they're saying that God is the one who can see where you can't see and where you lost it at, God can, can take you right there and put your hand on it and allows you to find what you lost in humanity. Powerful. Not only that, but he's the God who meets out justice, who removes curses, and he's the God who clears the forest when the trees blur your vision. It is to know God in a very personal way because they're trying to tell us that God is so vast that God is personable, God is prophetic, and yet God is purposeful as well. When I talk about not having eloquency to describe who God is, I'm going back to ancestry and rethinking what ancestors used to say in trying to describe God. And remember, because they didn't have access to the modern entities of which we have now, they, are a they were able to say things that would blow our mind and yet the description was so simple but yet profound for example knowing that they didn't have access to health care knowing that they couldn't get to a hospital nor was any around to take them there so they would say that the god that they know is the doctor in a sick room in other words all they could do was just call out on his name and just had to trust that God would come down and heal their body right where they were. They didn't have any access to hiring a lawyer if they had a justice issue. They would end up going to court, but it wouldn't really be much of a court, so they had to depend on God, and they say that God is your lawyer in the courtroom. He, he will be there to defend you and to make sure that justice comes down your pipe very limited access to what we would call bread so they would say that when they needed food God will be bread to the hungry and would be water to the thirsty and they really would get deep when they say that no matter what kind of challenge you are met with what kind of trouble you experiencing God will be your bridge over troubled waters they try to describe God, not with theological terms, but they are giving you practical, pragmatic terms to help you see that. I don't know the religious jogger, they would say, but I know that when I needed him, he was my bridge over that troubled water. When, when I needed healing, he became my doctor in the sick room. When I needed somebody to help stand for me in the court of law, that was my lawyer who stood there and when I needed bread when I was hungry he became my bread made a way out of no way and when I needed water in my thirsty moments 
he became my water in the midst of the thirsties. In the fields, through the hot fields, through the course of the day, and perhaps even because their families had been broken up, they would find themselves friendless. So they would come to know God as a friend to the friendless. They knew that God would sit with you and work with you and walk with you and run with you and lay down with you and sleep with you and reside wherever you go. God would always be the friend that you needed in a tough warrior. They had to fight battles, but they knew they didn't house the ammunition nor the weaponry to fight conventionally. So they looked at God as the, water, as the warrior who would fight your battles. And some of these things I know we know about them ourselves. We describe them in more authentic or should we say more profound terms, but we know what it means to have God to fight a battle for us when we know we couldn't win that battle, when God stood as the warrior who would look out for you. They were simply trying to tell us that God is, not that God was and that God shall be, but that God is the ever-present help in the time of trouble. But in Genesis chapter 1, those first four words gives us the origin of the English translation of what we call God. In fact, when you read the text, in the beginning God, the word God there is actually the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim, Elohim, which means the strong one, the eternal God who transcends time. This is important because if I know who holds time and if I know who is stronger than the strongest and if I know who is the mightier than the mightiest, then I know I'm connected to the right one, the God who is the strong one and the God who is the mighty one and the God who transcends time. Here is what, here is what the writer is trying to tell us. God always was and God always is and God always shall be. Timeless. That's the reason why you have to begin the first verse within the beginning, but you have to try to look at the beginning in terms of human composition, in terms of the earth, the earth in its development, because when you think about God, you can't find a beginning. When you think about God, you can't even find the end. So God yet sits in the category of isness all the time. Always was, always will be, and always shall be. God is. To know that name is to know the person is to know the purpose and to know the plan of God. And the person is the creator. The purpose is creation. And the plan of God is to engage that creation might reflect who the creator is. That's the reason why later we read that we are created in the image of God that we might reflect who God is. And all through scripture, we are admonished by this power to know God. In fact, God commands us to know his name. Psalm 8 and 1. O Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Now you think about that. Of all the names that I can consider, 
all of the names that I know that carry power and weight that has authority at the naming of this person doors can open doors can shut the naming of an individual life can change at a mere click of a second yet neither overpower nor can they usurp the the authority and the power that resides in the name of God Elohim the God who is the strong one the God who is the mighty one and the God who transcends time God commands us to know how majestic is his name in all of the earth no matter where you go in the earth no name can transcend that which is in God. God not, not only commands us, but God compels us in because of his name to praise his name. Psalm 52 verse 9, here's a shouting verse. I will praise you, O Lord, forever for what you have done. Now, I know some people consistently contend that you should just praise God for who God is. I got that. But, I can't praise God for who God is unless I know God for who God is. In other words, knowing that he's a way maker, I can't really celebrate that until I've had a moment when he's been my way maker. I can't celebrate really that God is a healer until I've had to be healed divinely. I can't really say that God will open doors. I can't celebrate that God opened door until I've had a shut door in my face and God has opened the door. I can't say that God in terms of celebration is my comforter unless I've had a moment where darkness had invaded my space of light and all of my comfort has left and God showed up and sat down right beside me and wrapped his arms all around me and that's how I can stand and say I know he's a comforter I know he's a way maker I know he's a healer I know he's a bridge over troubled waters I know he'll help you I know he'll strengthen you because I've experienced him for myself I got to know him personally to holler out and I praise his name because of what he's done for me that's the reason why I, I, I just laugh at people who say about other people when other people are celebrating who God is it just does not take all of that they should just sit down and be quiet you can just praise God inside your mind and heart I got that got all that but when I think about the goodness of Jesus and all that he's done for me where he has brought me from how he has brought me out how he has lifted me up how he has opened those doors how he has brought me up from the sick bed how he does watch over me how he has angels all around me my soul cries out hallelujah and I'm sorry I might not can sit in my seat I might not just can clap my hands but I might have to run around because he gets all in my feet and he gets all in my hand and he gets all in my mind and I might not just can sit there and be quiet 
giant, but I got a holler because when I know how good he's been to me, I'm not ashamed to praise and to let somebody know that the Lord is good. You don't know like I know what the Lord grandmama say what the Lord has done for me God compels us to praise his name but then God challenges us to trust his name Proverbs 18 and 10 says that the Lord or the name of the Lord is a strong tower watch this and the righteous run to him to find safety i don't know about you but that's a shouting word for me because when i am faced with a moment when options have been cut out see none of y'all ain't never been there when you don't have no options you know when you got options you can try it and you can get out of some things but when moments come when all the options has been exhausted all of the resources have dried up all of the possibilities of the professionals have proven to be null and void that that's why i think that woman with the issue of blood if you read one of the gospel writers said that she had spent all and she had visited all the physicians and nothing seems to pan out and she had to stretch herself out and come to realize that she had to know that now was her time her challenge condition challenged her that now was the time for you to trust in the lord and all she said in her mind was if i could just touch the hem of his garment i know that i will be made whole and the bible says that when she got to that garment and touched him something happened in fact one gospel writer says the virtue went out of jesus and that thing moved jesus so that he turned around and said who touched me and that's what i try to do i don't do it all the time but every now and then i can tell that i've gotten into heaven because i can hear god say who touched me murphy is trying to cry out for me and i feel that there's some genuineness in his crying out you ever felt like your prayer only got to the ceiling and then the other times you know it got further than that because God responded back in giving us the assurance but challenging us to trust him when your back is against the wall and there are no other options and all you can do is trust God when the doctors tell you well we've, we've done all that we can do now we have to just wait in time and you know that's cold word you got to put it in the hands of the lord now for god to bring about a miracle and you had to wait for that time when you have been laid off and you know you've only got so much in reserve and when that reserve is gone and you're getting right down to the very bottom of the barrel where the meal is about gone and you had to trust god and god refilled the barrel for you it says that God is the strong tower and the righteous run to God to find safety safety Lord I need to know your name because when I've been insulted 
in my spirit by church folk I need to find some safety when my heart has been broken by life I need to find some safety when the world kicks me in my stomach and knocks me to my knees I need to find some safety and that's where the reality of the hymnologist comes to pass leaning on the everlasting arms of God Psalm 910 says that those who know the Lord's name will put their trust in him when you know that name now what name am I talking about El Ohim in the beginning God Elohim God L, L in itself, L, the prefix is the powerful word in itself, powerful name is what it is. It's so powerful that if you read scripture, you'll recognize that the, the actual name of God is attached to the name of a person. Watch this. Sam U L. Dan U L. Iman U L Beth L. All of those are the suggestions that someone realized that they want to be connected to the name of God because that will cause me to experience the power that is wrapped in the name of God. El, Elohim. I, I, I like that name because it says to me that God is a person who reveals himself as personal. Read Genesis 1. All through that scripture, you can experience the personal connection of God to God's creation. Whether the earth or rather humanity, God is personal. That's what I like. And what makes that exciting to me is that the way God deals with me may be different than the way God deals with you. So different and so exciting is that God is so unique in that giving us that personal presence that the way God deals with you don't suggest that God has to deal with me that way because God is doing with you how God knows you need to be dealt with and God is dealing with me how God knows I need to be dealt with because God is personal. That's what I like about God. He's personal. So if I don't want to say religious jogger, Lord, you are the God who occupied the throne of heaven. You are the highest of the most highest. Here I am, your humble servant is calling on your name right now. I know you're busy. Listen, God said, you know what? Because I'm personal, you talk to me the way you need to talk to me. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I just don't have time to formulate my prayer where it sounds good in my own ear. I just simply holler out, Lord, help a brother out right now. I need some help, I need some strength, I need some guidance, I need some word, I need some power, I need some direction, I need some hope, I need something, God. That's, that's, that's all I can formulate in my mind. But God responds because God is personal. 
Not only that, but God in Genesis 1 relates to his creation. In relating to his creation, that reminds us of a New Testament principle. Jesus had made clear that he would never leave us nor forsake us. Contending that in Genesis 1, God is already establishing the foundation that not only will I be the creator for my creation, but I want my creation to know that I'm always there. There. That's why the psalmist says, if I go up, God is up there. If I go out, God is out there. If I go beneath, God is down there. There's no escaping from where God is because God is always there. What I like about that is I don't have to come to church or be in a church to experience the presence of God. In fact, I don't have to be in what's deemed as a sacred space. I can be wherever I am and God is there, New Testament principle, because God lives within me. And by living within me, God relates to his creation by always being there. And that being the case, God releases, God releases his promises to me. Because in the beginning, God, Elohim, Elohim is the most quoted description of God in the Old Testament. 2,600 times the word Elohim appears. In fact, 32 times in the first chapter of Genesis alone. Elohim, Elohim, what God does, the plural form, God is God. It's a plural form because when you read the text, you will often find where kings, where rulers, where those of power would use even the term Elohim judges, to connote themselves to being all-powerful and almighty. But they never could live up to who the almighty and the who all-powerful is. In fact, it has been suggested by some scholars that the Hebrews never really knew the name in terms of Elohim until they got in Canaan. And when they got in Canaan, their experience of seeing God work in a very mighty way caused the Canaanites to adopt the name El to attach to their gods and call him the mighty bull. Because God is so influential that everybody else wants to borrow who God's name is. So you know that name in Genesis 1 because it depicts God as the creator in the beginning, God created. God created. I'm glad that God creates because I need sometimes God to create miracles out of the mess that I've created. And by God being the creator, and that helps me understand when you read Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, and the earth was without void, or was void in form, had no form. It was chaos. And I make chaos sometimes. In fact, I live in chaos. And in God's creative hand, he steps in 
and recreates the chaos and creates a composite of peace. When Jesus was out on the stormy sea with the disciples and the chaotic storm arose, the chaos had so tripped them out that they hollered out, Master, King James Version, carest thou not that we are going to perish? But the creator of the storm, the waters themselves, and the wind. See, God, through Jesus, when you read the word Elohim, the name, there's also pluralism in terms of the Trinitarian aspect of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Just in that incident alone, the disciples out on the sea, God in his Son underneath the ship. And yet God in the wind, the power of his spirit, and yet God in the water that creates the chaos, steps up to the front of the boat and looks at the chaotic storm and tells it, shh, peace be still. And creation knows when its creator has spoken. Because the Bible says the winds bowed down and went to sleep on his command. See, that's, that's comforting to me that God is the kind of God who creates. Because in my chaos, I need God to calm the sea, the raging sea, the storm. Death has occurred. Death has rattled my soul. Death has taken out of me and taken away. Now the storm of pain is raging. I need God to step in and create some peace in the language of Paul that surpasses all understanding. Won't know about that until you've had to walk that street. When your heart has been broken, your spirit has been sore, and chaos in terms of death and pain is raging, and God steps in through hands through words shh and calms the storm in the beginning God created but watch this when you read the second verse it says that the spirit of God was moving over the face of the deep look at that the chaotic world and God says let me put stuff in order so that chaos will leave. That's, that's why I'm glad God can put some things in order when I threw them out of order. Not only that, but the Bible says that Elohim, God, communicates, speaks to us. Look at the text, verse 3. Then, I like the progression because after God began to straighten out the chaos, then God said, says the text, God said, let there be. And there it was. Let there be light. And there was light. God speaks to us. I'm so glad God is not abstract. God is not a divinity that sits out there and I have to only hope that he hears me. That's the episode at Mount Carmel with Elijah and the false prophets. 
Elijah had so much trust and confidence in the God that he served that he told the prophets, you go first. Shoot, I, I ain't worried about it. You go on first because you might need to call on your God. I don't know where he is. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Kings that they were up there crying out to their God. And Elijah, with his own mode of sarcasm, says, maybe your God is on vacation. I don't know. He may be in the Bahamas chilling, but you calling and he ain't answering. To the point where the Bible says they begin to cut themselves out of rage and disappointment because their God did not answer. He doesn't speak. In fact, God and the prophet Elijah and the prophet Isaiah re reminds Israel, be careful when you start making idols because idols don't talk. Idols can't make a way for you. Idols can't be there for you. Idols will not go where you are. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3 says that God speaks. God said, let there be, and there it was. And I'm so glad that God speaks. He's not out there. But Elijah says, watch this. Let me show you how this thing is done, said Elijah. He called on the name of the Lord, and God brought down fire, and the fire licked up the water on the sacrifice. When the last time you seen fire licked up water. Elijah says, let me show you when you serve a God who speaks. When you are forced in a context where you need to hear a word from the Lord. You ever been in a moment where you are in a raging moment of anger or evil and you can't get a word in so all you can do is say in your spirit, Lord, speak to me so that I don't go off on this individual and make this thing worse than what it already is. And God speaks. I really believe in my spirit. I've heard God say to me, in fact, I know, can't nobody change my mind, don't say nothing. God said, don't say nothing. I know you want to, don't you say a word. Don't say nothing. And I promise you, I'll fix this for you. I'm talking about a God who speaks. You ever had God tell you it was God? I can tell you it was God, but to you, you just heard a voice. Don't go over there. Not tonight. Don't go there tonight. Don't go down that street. Mm-mm. Don't go with them. Mm-mm. And you know, you were hesitant. You were saying to yourself, I want to go so bad, but something in me keeps saying don't go, and I decide not to go. And when you hear the report the next day, you shout, Lord, I thank you. I did not go. Talking about a God who speaks. You need to show up at that school tonight. Go down there and see that child's teacher. There's something you need to hear that that child ain't telling you. And you show up to find out that this child is almost about to flunk out. That's what God, the God who speaks. And God said, let there be. Now, this is important because when I'm fighting the demonic activity, I need to know that I have in the God that I serve, the Elohim, the mighty one, the strong one, God has given me the power to speak. And when I speak, I believe something's going to change. And then in this text, gosh, all through the text, it says God said, God made creation speaking, but then nothing more is excited than you go down to verse 31 because God 
celebrates. God actually celebrates us. Look at verse 31, it says, when God saw, that's another thing I like about God, let me just drop a dime on that, the eyes of God, says Isaiah, run throughout the world, seeking, looking, roaming everywhere. That's the reason why the psalmist says, you can't hide from God, no matter where you go, God's eyes gonna find you right there. But I'm glad that God sees, because if I'm in Virginia, and I know that God sees me, but when I travel to West Virginia or North Carolina or Pennsylvania, I want to be confident that the God I serve sees me up there as well. And he does. So all through Genesis 1, you see God created, God made, God saw, God said. But then in verse 31, it says God celebrates. Look at what it says. God saw that all he had made and behold, it was good. That's the reason why you talk about self-esteem. You ain't got to read a book. You really don't have to. All you got to do is just read Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. Right there is all the composing that you need to know in terms of self-esteem. God made me, and then God looked at me and said, man, that is some kind of good. Right? Look, at, look at my handiwork right there. Doesn't matter how tall you are, how short you are, how wide you are, how thin you are, how dark you are, how light you are. When you look at yourself in the mirror, you just remember when God made me, he stepped back and said to himself, I did a good thing when I made that child. And God is celebrating who I am, where I am, and what I am. That's shouting news to me right there. God celebrates me, which says to me that I need to celebrate who I am because of the God that I serve, Elohim, the mighty one and the strong one. Now, in my final point, when you move on to the text, you can find God throughout Genesis in what we call compound natures, compound words. For example, the El the, is there, but yet it's connected to El Elyon, which means that God is the most high God, Genesis 14 and 18. God is the most high. No matter where, what other God one encounters, try to see if they get above the God of creation. Or El Shaddai, the Lord God Almighty. Genesis 17 and 1. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is introduced to El Shaddai, the God who is not only just the mighty one, but the God who is fruitful. El Shaddai, the God who makes you fruitful. Or El Rohi, the God, once again, who sees, Genesis 16. Let me close with that, the God who sees. When Abraham sent Hagar away from the family because of Sarah's anger, they may have thought that they were sending Hagar out in the wilderness to nowhere and that God would even leave his daughter out in the middle of nowhere. But read Genesis 16. It says that God sent an angel who saw Hagar sitting by the river in the wilderness. In other words, no matter where you go and no matter where people try to assign you to, God's got his eyes on you and God sees you. No matter what you're experiencing, God, when they mistreat you in the office, God sees you. 
when they try to dog you out, God sees you. When family act like they've lost their mind and act like they don't know that y'all the same part of the same family, God sees you. When church folks shout on Sunday and cuss you out on Monday, God sees you. Everywhere you go, God sees you. And when God saw Hagar, he didn't leave Hagar alone in the wilderness with her child, but he made sure she saw, she saw the stream of water in the wilderness so that she nor her child would die. That's the kind of God we serve. God will provide for you because God sees where you don't see. Just read Genesis again. I think it's Genesis 19. Could be, no, Genesis 19 about Sodom and Gomorrah. It could be Genesis 20 or 21. Remember where Abraham goes up to Mount Moriah and Abraham is going to offer Isaac a sacrifice. And amazingly, Abraham yet does not see that there's a ram in the thicket stuck in the bush until the angel tells him, don't bring down the knife. Now God says, I know where your heart lies. And the Bible says that Abraham looked over and saw the ram in the thicket. Now I'm spiritual. I want to be spiritual on this. So I think that he couldn't see it on the way up because God didn't mean for him to see it. But when he needed to see it, he saw it. And that's the way God does sometimes. You, you ever lost something and you keep looking and then you mess, it was right there, right beside me. I, how, how come I didn't see that? What meant for you to see at the moment? But you fail him. God, that means that the strong one, the fortress, is the God that you serve. And I came by just to tell somebody, in the midst of our trying to do better, Get to know the name of God, and you will be surprised of what connection you have in terms of the power and the authority of God. Because in that name alone, that name brings out change. If we, we took an express bus and got to the New Testament, it is Luke who tells us in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God. I'm going to tell you what that word Lord means in the weeks to come because it's likewise used throughout Scripture uh, because Hebrews would not pronounce the word Yahweh because it was too holy. So they replaced it with the word Adonai, Lord. And all through scripture, you can see how they would utilize that name which gave them the power in the presence of evil to call on the name and God came to the rescue. And that's what I came to tell you today. He's right here to rescue you. You just need to call on that name. Lord, I thank you for the word.